The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. Just as we were about to call you on the phone, he announced he needed to go get another beer. So, uh, <laughs> so he was gone. Uh, that, first. that explains a lot. Yeah. <laughs> explains oh yeah, this is this is pure hanger. You know, this is pure hanger flying. Yeah. So we try to replicate the experience to the greatest extent possible. I mean, you know, scotch beer. Uh, I spread a little uh, forty weight oil on my forehead. <laughs> I, I, I know you. I know you need a lot of that to get through a winter in Wichita, but I'm not sure what Jeb's excuse. Is. <laughs> I, I, I have no excuse except I'm just uh, enjoying the 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 the, the um, basking in the glow of finishing another day at the office. Uh-huh. That's right. So. You're the work a day guy now, right? It's like that's right. Uh, that's right. That's right. So, all right then. Well then, uh, with that, I will say welcome, folks, to episode number sixty-six <laughs> of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. Uh, we're recording this episode on. Let's see if I get this right. It's Wednesday evening, Jul- uh, July. Wednesday evening, January. Wishful thinking. January thirtieth, two thousand and eight. And yeah, if this was July thirtieth, we'd all be in a warmer place and closer in proximity. That's right. That's what we're gonna. That's, uh, that's right. Just can't come too soon for me. Although I'm looking forward to sun and fun. That'll be great too. Uh huh. This episode uh, is a little bit special. This is part of the uh, what Dave dubbed the Podmation Flightcast, uh, which means this week we're in coordination with a bunch of our fellow aviation podcasts to uh, focus on the subject of buying and owning your own airplane. And uh, so if you haven't already, you should track down uh, the other podcasts, uh, for example, the Airspeed podcast, the Finer Points podcast, and the uh, Private Pilot Podlog podcast, as well as perhaps a few others. Check the show notes for uh, some other perspectives on the subject. But we're going to kind of do our, uh, our, our, our thing, our, our, our virtual hangar, uh, online <coughs> hangar flying thing, and uh, talk a little bit about the kind of joys and sorrows of owning your own airplane. <laughs> and, so let me let me say hello to the other folks who are here this evening with us in the virtual hangar. We have with us uh, Dave Higdon is here. Dave is an aviation photographer, a senior editor for Kit Planes magazine, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales magazine. And he's joining us from Wichita, Kansas. How are you doing, Dave? Not bad. Not bad. Quick and dirty on the subject. The worst part about owning an airplane is not owning an airplane. <laughs> yeah, I can attest to that. But yeah, and, and you certainly can both from from both sides of that that coin. So yeah, it, it, it's it's bad having had and not having now. Yeah. So how's life so, in Wichita right now? Everything okay? Well, we got uh, we, we we're steaming along pretty well. Uh, uh, had a uh, severe wind warning today, which you know when you get a severe wind warning in Kansas, you know it means something. Yeah. Uh, so it was it was howling in the. I had an appointment this morning. It was howling in the 30s and gusting into the high 40s. 
uh, rattling trees and shedding limbs and a, a medical helicopter that I saw flying across the city. Uh, I think he had an anchor out in front of him and he was reeling himself to his destination because it sure didn't look like normal helicopter flight. Yeah, really? Wow. And we got a winter storm warning for tonight, so it's just going to get more entertaining as the week goes on. Yeah, we're done with winter up here in Boston. It's not going to... No, no. <laughs> sure you are. Yeah, absolutely. This is I'm, this is my story and I'm sticking to it. Also with us in the hangar this evening is Jeb Burnside. Jeb is an aviation journalist currently serving as editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. And he's also a contributing editor to AvWeb Biz, and he's talking to us from Sarasota, Florida, where it's not winter anymore either. How you doing, it's, it's, uh, Jeb? I'm fine. I, I, you know, hope springs eternal, Jack. And, and I, truly, <laughs> I, I truly do hope that for you and, and uh, all of your uh, colleagues and neighbors up there, the winter is over. But I wouldn't put a whole lot of money on it if I were you. Yeah, I got one, this. One, of, one of two wishes, that winter's over and that the Patriots win on Sunday. Well, that's uh, another I, story I think you got no better than 50-50 here. As far as winter being over, I've, I got this straight from, straight from uh, you know, Florida's favorite son, Al Gore. And uh, uh-huh. he says... I don't know. Uh, yeah. He invented uh, winter, didn't he? That's right, yeah. Right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. He invented winter and the internet, of course. Of well, course. It, it, I think it broke 75 down here today. Uh, I told you not to break it. Because <laughs> you're going to well, want we'll, it again later on. That's, that's okay. We'll fix it tomorrow. It's, it's all, all right. And also with us in the hangar this evening is a uh, is a newcomer, uh, to the hangar anyways, uh, an old friend of Jeb and Dave's and uh, a new friend of mine. Mike Bush is here with us in the hangar. He's a, Mike uh, was one of the co-founders of AvWeb, the popular aviation news website, and served as its editor-in-chief for more than seven years. These days, he's a prolific aviation writer and a consultant on GA maintenance and ownership issues. He's been an aircraft owner for the past 40 years. Uh, he currently owns, flies, and maintains a twin Cessna. He's a 7,000-hour commercial pilot, an instrument and multi-engine flight instructor, an A&P mechanic, and was recently named Aviation Maintenance Technician of the Year for the Western Pacific Region by the FAA Safety Team. That's right. And he's talking to us from, from, uh, I assume from your home, but he's talking to us from Santa Maria, California, our first West Coaster in the hangar. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing fine. Uh, Our our winners are are, uh, liquid here. That's right. Uh, it rains. How's it been? And you're fairly near the coast, so uh, uh, we've been getting a lot of rain, which is wonderful. Uh, we we, it's, we only get rain possibly four months out of the year. The other eight months is is dry. So if we don't get lots of rain during those four months, we're in big trouble. And last year we were in big trouble. So everybody is out there praying for rain this year. And so far it's been pretty good. Yeah, you've been catching up uh, uh, pretty good. Apparently the Sierra has got a lot of snow so far, right? Oh yeah. Well, that's right. It was all in the news recently that uh, that the the grapevine section of I five got snowed in a couple days ago, right? I don't know. That's that's somewhat near your area, right? Uh, that's that's south of us. We have a a pass a little north of us, uh, just north of San Luis Obispo, and uh, every few years uh, we'll get a few little sprinkles of snow up on the very top of the pass mm-hmm. and yeah. all the residents go driving up to the top of the pass that's right show their kids snow because they've never seen it before that's right <laughs> yeah that would happen i, I lived in uh, as a lot of listeners know i lived in uh, the san francisco bay area for about 10 years and uh, i know exactly what you're talking about that uh, every two or three years you'd get snow in the mountains around the bay area and uh, people would jump in their cars and drive up to to skyline boulevard and uh, skyline drive and 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 then wreck their cars and drive off the road and they're just terrible at it so uh. <laughs> so i looked on a map santa maria appears to be um am i correct it's uh, sort of between san luis obispo and santa barbara right 
Yes, that's correct. So it's in that part of the part of uh, California. Now, here's my question. I'm always curious about this. Do you consider yourself to be in in Northern California or Southern California? Um, well, that's that's tough. We're almost exactly on the boundary. I, I actually, my home is at the very south end of San Luis Obispo County, uh, which is controlled by the. Um, uh, the San Jose Fisdo, that's Northern California. Uh-huh. My, airplane, my airplane is in Santa Maria, which is controlled by the Van Nuys Fisdo in Southern California. So <laughs> I, I just kind of straddle the boundary there. I see. So that's, I'm not sure most Californians would use that measure to decide where Northern and Southern California uh, boundary is, but... Uh, but, what other measure is there, Jack? Uh, I don't, well, <laughs> put in my place by the new guy. All right. maybe, maybe, you know, maybe a center division line in uh-huh. between L.A. Center. Oh, and- that's also true. My home is almost exactly the dividing line between Los Angeles Center and uh, and uh, Oakland Center. So that, that, that works as well. There you go. And I am Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. I'm up here in Boston, Massachusetts, where winter is over. So, uh, <laughs> Mike, like we beautiful uh, dreamer, as we as we like to do with uh, with new visitors to the virtual hangar, I was hoping maybe you could tell us a little bit about your, you know, your background. Tell us who you are. How 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 did you get involved in in aviation? And uh, you know what what is it about aviation that keeps your attention? Well, I, I got involved in aviation so long ago, I don't even remember it, I think. Uh, uh-huh. um, uh, Dave was talking about the miseries of not owning an airplane. I, I, uh, that's a new one on me, but, but uh, I've owned air, an airplane so long that I can't remember when I didn't own one, actually. I guess I, guess, uh, uh, I got my first, bought my first airplane in 1968 and uh, became a private pilot in 1964 when I was uh, in college, I guess my junior year of college. Um, I have no idea what prompted me to do it, uh, but I was actually between two semesters of college uh, working uh, in Phoenix, Arizona on a summer job. I was going to college up in uh, at Dartmouth up in New Hampshire, but I was in Phoenix for six months between my um, junior and senior years. And, of course, the, the weather in Phoenix is always clear in a million, and somehow I decided I was going to get my private pilot's license, and I did while I was in Phoenix. And almost literally within weeks after I got my ticket, uh, I moved back east. Uh, back, uh, I entered Princeton, actually, for some graduate work. And um, uh, first time I, I flew uh, back east, it, it, it scared the hell out of me because <laughs> I, I, I had never flown in anything less than about 100 miles visibility. So it was... <laughs> it was a real epiphany, <laughs> or and I never landed on anything less than about a ten thousand foot runway. So it was right. It was then there's a, all those trees. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yep. So and uh, but was, I sure knew a lot about density altitude. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet it, it gets it gets cold as it gets in at Dartmouth. It gets hot in Phoenix in the in the summertime and uh, or all year round, but especially in the summertime, it gets brutally hot. So. So where have you flown? Where what have you called home base over the years, uh, other than well, San, Santa Maria? Uh, I uh, grew up in New York City. Um, I uh, got my private, as I said, in Phoenix, but but immediately moved back uh, east. Got my instrument rating uh, back there, uh, actually in New York. And New York's a great place to get your instrument rating because it, it teaches you assertiveness training. <laughs> 
the, the New York the New York controllers are sort of unique, and uh, if you learn to if you if you learn your instrument skills in New York, then nobody ever intimidates you again. It's really uh, right. and then in um, uh, 1968, I moved to California um, and bought my first airplane, and have been an aircraft owner and a Californian ever since. So that's uh, yeah. what what was the first one, Mike? Uh, it was a, uh, a Cessna 182. In fact, it was a brand new Cessna 182 that I picked up at the Cessna Delivery Center in Wichita uh, in 1968. Your first uh, trip to Wichita, I bet. It was. And uh, if you recall, back in 1968, well, I don't know, can you, you can recall back to 1968. Can't you? <laughs> I can. Um, um, that was back uh, before the the, uh, the Reagan Revolution, and it, it was back in those days that uh, that uh, income tax rates were about 90% or something like that. And uh, there were all of these wonderful loopholes that so, such that if you bought a new airplane, the government basically paid for half of it. Right. Um, and uh, so people bought new airplanes back then. Yeah. Um, and so my first airplane was a new airplane. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, say Dave was certainly alive in 1968, but he can't remember much of it. Well, that was that was that was the year I graduated from high school in Indiana. Well, and, see, there uh, you go. My point exactly. But he, but even then, I knew about Wichita and uh, Cessna and Beach and and Learjet was still fairly new then. So we were seeing them on the TV shows. Mike, what do you what do you remember about the the buying process of that first airplane? You're relative relatively new pilot, um, and uh, I mean, was it as simple as walking into a quote unquote showroom and 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 deciding you that's the airplane you wanted, or was there much in the decision making process? Um, I was, you know, totally naive, um, and uh, I'm, I'm sure I was sold a bill of goods by a Cessna salesman back then. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's been a long, a long learning experience. Um, but uh, uh, actually, I, I had pretty good luck with that airplane. Uh, fortunately, back in the late '60s and early '70s, when general aviation was or, or piston GA was kind of in its heyday, um, we had the benefit of a very, very robust maintenance infrastructure. Uh, every airport of any size had a big Cessna service center on it with. With mechanics who knew what they were doing, and and uh, so uh, as, even as a naive owner, I, I actually fared pretty well. Um, uh, had had that all happened twenty years later, I w- would have been in a world of hurt, I think. But uh, but but back then, um, we we did have a, a a very very good maintenance infrastructure, so that owners could pretty much get away with you know dropping off the airplane and the keys and saying call me when you're done and, and they wouldn't get into too much trouble uh, that unfortunately is not true today but uh, it was true back then yeah. can you think of a an example of something you know so how many airplanes have you owned over the years um i've owned three airplanes okay. uh the, the airplane i fly now the twin cessna that you mentioned uh, i've had for about 21 years now so um okay. I, I started out with a skylane um, I moved up to a um, uh, a single engine retractable, actually a Belanca Super Viking, which was a very interesting airplane. Um, and uh, then one of those uh, just today. About twenty one years ago, I wound up uh, buying the twin Cessna, and I've had that ever since. Can you think of an example in in the process of buying any of those airplanes where, looking back on it, you say, "Man, that was a mistake." 
not necessarily the the choice, but the, the in the buying process. I wish I had done this. I mean, what, what, what's a typical mistake that that you made or that people make? Um, I actually was fortunate enough not to be victim to any big mistakes. Uh, uh, not not probably not because I was talented, but because I was lucky. But um, I have counseled a lot of 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 owners who have made pretty serious mistakes um, uh, over the years. I, I've been uh, involved in um, various of the type clubs uh, in a support capacity for uh, quite a long time, uh, about 15 years in the case of the Cessna Pilots Association. And more recently, I've been doing support work for the American Bonanza Society and the Cirrus Owners and Pilots Association. Um, and uh, so uh, I, I I know an awful lot of horror stories, but fortunately, I didn't personally get involved in any of them. I've been very, very lucky with my three airplanes. You've learned from others' experiences rather than yeah. suffering your own. I want to hear more about those other exper- about your experience with other people buying airplanes, but let's come back to that in a second. Um, Dave, we've talked a lot about this over the year and a half in the podcast, but um, tell us again the first airplane you bought. We... Uh yeah, you know, after flying nothing but hang gliders and ultralights for 18 years, I finally cracked down and, and decided to get a ticket in '95. And uh, in looking at the numbers, it seemed like the most sensible thing to do was to uh, buy a little airplane because we wanted to try flying it on business and, and pleasure. And, uh, shopped around, settled on the little Cherokee, and found a lovely little 140 locally. Uh, that belonged to two partners that work for Boeing Wichita, and they were looking to get out from under it. Uh, their uh, partnership had kind of gotten physically split up when one of them got transferred, and the other one was only flying the airplane about 15 or 20 hours a year. And uh, with a potential partner in tow, went out to the uh, airport where it was based and uh, took a look at it. And with my other buddy was my partner prospect was uh, current and pilot, so we flew it together and came back and offered the guy $18,000 for a 69-140 with a low-time engine, uh, IFR avionics, uh, nice shape, decent paint, uh, original interior, but it was uh, it was in okay shape. The guy took it, and we had an airplane, and uh, got my ticket in it over the course of the next month. And then we proceeded to fly it for about 340 hours over the next two years, uh, going all over the mostly the eastern part of the U.S. But uh, in going through it, you know, we researched values. We found a shop that had done no maintenance on the airplane that would do a pre-purchase for us. Uh, and uh, the owner and I flew up to to do the pre-purchase and and hung around, and it got done in about a 10-hour day. Uh, didn't turn up anything more serious than a, uh, a weak battery. The battery was going to go south soon and need to be replaced. Uh, called up an, uh, a pilot association affiliate loan company. We'd been pre-approved, got the deal done, went through escrow, and had an airplane in the course of about uh, 10 days. Mm-hmm. Looking back on that purchase, um, is there any aspect of it that you think, man, I was lucky because I should have done this or... 
Well, there were there were some things that cropped up not long after we bought uh, the airplane. When I say not long, about in within the first six or seven months, but they were mostly wear related and not stuff that you could have easily detected ahead of time. Uh, for one thing, in the first six months we had the airplane, we put 130 hours on it, uh, and the alternator failed. Uh, well, that was not a biggie, and uh, not long after the alternator failed, uh, the starter had to be replaced. Um, but outside of that, uh, the airplane was remarkably trouble-free for the two years we had it, and I understand it's still flying pretty well now. Are, are those uh, we, kind of are those kind of failures the kind of things that typically you can spot in advance, or, or you just got to trust to luck? I, I have not heard of a way where you could inspect an alternator and predict its imminent failure, although you could certainly look at how long it's been on the airplane and uh, and check things like uh, play in the bearings and tension on the belt and maybe take the belt off and spin it, see if it makes any particular noise. But uh, what failed in this were uh, electrical parts as opposed to mechanical parts. Mm-hmm. Mike, does that make sense to you? Yeah, um, probably what Probably what happened was uh, was the the uh, diodes in the rectifier assembly failed. Is that right, uh, Dave? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. And and that that's uh, that's just a failure of a solid state device. There's no uh, condition monitoring technique that you can use to predict that. It, it's just something that happens after a while. Like any other solid state thing, um, those things are normally caused by exposure to heat. Uh, and uh, eventually, um, if uh, an alternator runs long enough and nothing mechanical goes wrong with it, eventually it will have a diode fail, and that's just par for the course. Yeah. <clears throat> Jeb, tell us about your first airplane. Well, my, my first airplane was part of a club, uh, or I should say maybe a joint ownership experience. Um, had a, a gentleman in, based at a nearby airport who, who owned a um, Cessna 205 which is essentially a fixed-gear Centurion 210, um, from dating from, from 1963. It was a 63 model. And he hadn't been flying it. It was, it was um, legal and, and airworthy, but it needed some TLC. And uh, myself uh, and uh, a couple, three other people uh, kind of banded together and um, bought shares of the airplane and formed a little uh, uh, partnership. Um, didn't do a whole lot of due diligence. I'd flown the airplane. I, you know, kind of pawed through the logbooks a little bit. Didn't really know what I was looking for. Um, this kind of thing. Um, flew the airplane a, a good bit uh, um, over uh, a couple month period uh, uh, during the <clears throat> uh, initial portion of the partnership. One of the partners um, took it on a uh, a trip uh, out to the Midwest and. Uh, got a call uh, while he was on this trip that uh, he was on the ground in, I don't know, St. Joseph, Missouri or something like that uh, with a, uh, a blown jug. And, uh, you know, what were we going to do to get, you know, get the airplane back in the air and yada, yada, yada. Um, one thing led to another. I don't remember the exact details. Uh, we, we got a, uh, 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 found a, a used cylinder. Um, the, um, uh, the previous full owner of the airplane, who was now a partner in the airplane, um, got the jug, got on an airplane, and, and flew out with the help of a, a local A and P. Hung a new jug on the hung the new jug on the airplane, and got in it to fly it home. 
and um, made it all the way from Missouri to uh, Virginia nonstop, landing shortly after dark, and somehow um, caught a wingtip on a sapling or a tree or something like that next to the runway. I don't understand that in hindsight, but uh, managed to wipe out the airplane. Uh, basically, the insurance company totaled it, and he got out and walked away, uh, um, figuratively, not financially. Um, the punch, the, the, the lesson I learned from all of that, <laughs> oh, as, man. <laughs> as, you, as you can well imagine, is to perhaps uh, approach a partnership, an airplane partnership, a little bit more carefully. Um, there were a lot of things I did not do. Uh, I think in the sum total of the entire episode, escapade, whatever you want to call it, I might have been out $100 before the shouting uh, was over with. And Wow, this, you lucked out. I did get lucky. I mean, b- between uh, the, the airplane, I mean, the, the, the hours that I flew on it and uh, uh, everything else considered, I got my money back out of it. It was, it was, not, a, it was not a big problem. Um, but I learned a lot about the partnership. I learned a good bit about uh, um, questions to ask um, when things go awry. Uh, I learned a little bit about maintenance, not nearly as much as Mike, of course. Um, and uh, learned that um, you know having an airplane uh, has obviously its ups and downs, um, but the ups are um, are better than the downs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Man, I'll tell you. Oh, excuse say, me. I, I, no, I was just going to say that that uh, last week on the podcast we talked about balls, and this this week we're talking about jugs. We're we're just going to get a reputation <laughs> here. <I don't> know. <laughs> what balls were we talking about last week? <laughs> oh, monkey, fr- yeah, brass monkey <laughs> balls. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, Mike. You were going to say. I was just going to say that I've heard it uh, said uh, many times that making a uh, an aircraft partnership work is tougher than making a marriage work. I'm not sure I yeah. want to open that door, but... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, this was, uh, um, you know, I went into it um, um, somewhat wide-eyed, but I went into it with more wishful thinking than I did due diligence. And the, the, But the punchline in all of that is... All right. That, there you go. That um, <laughs> I'm sorry, Mike. You probably aren't tuned into this inside joke here. Every time, every time Jeb says the punchline is we all get to take a drink. See, so that's <laughs> and he cut himself earl- off earlier. So that's I yeah. There, there, there's a drinking. Us. There's a drinking game that some of our listeners have started, and and uh, I, I I pay no attention to what the the keywords are. But uh, no, he um, drinks pun- far more often than he says yeah. in the punchline is. Yeah, pu- punchline is is one of the the keywords to to for allowing people to. Take a drink. That's right. Mike. I'm going to be so, out but, of scotch if you keep saying so. This. So, Mike, don't, exactly don't right. yeah, Mike, yeah. don't feel limited because we don't. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I, don't I feel that you have, <laughs> Yeah, don't feel like you have to participate either. But uh, um, what I was trying to say though is that uh, uh, the, the the concept of picking your partners is is certainly a, an important one, but unless everyone in the partnership shares the same goals. Um, keeping the airplane running, um, doing it doing it correctly, uh, making sure the airplane is not only airworthy but safe, and uh, it isn't going to break again once it gets fixed. Unless everyone shares those same goals, then there's just going to be a constant amount of friction uh, involved in the in the ownership and in the partnership, and you're better off 
uh, doing something else. You're better off renting. You're better off going to a club, uh, uh, or you're better off biting a bullet and, and putting your own money down on something. Uh, perhaps, perhaps a lesser airplane than you could otherwise afford in that partnership. So, have you been involved in other airplane partnerships since then? No, I've been involved in uh, uh, clubs. Uh, one was a uh, uh, basically a, a, a private club, uh, self uh, self maintained, self managed. Um, had had really good experiences in it. Um, I really sunk my teeth into flying airplanes. I won't say on a schedule, but with regularity, flying air, flying personal airplanes for transportation purposes. Um, got my instrument rating through uh, uh, through a club like that. Um, another organization that I, I uh, uh, benefited from, Civil Air Patrol. Um, I think I've mentioned on the podcast before that uh, uh, I, I had. Uh, been a part of a Civil Air Patrol squadron as a uh, student pilot and got a, a, a very good, well-maintained airplanes for almost no money at all, uh, c- certainly compared with today's prices. Um, <clears throat> I was also in the Andrews Air Force Base Aero Club for, for a few years. Um, a, a wide selection of airplanes, but also a wide variety of skills among the other pilots. Uh, and uh, you never knew from one day to the next, whether someone was going to ding an airplane or uh, it was, in fact, going to be available or it was going to be weathered out somewhere uh, away from base or something like that. So it was a little iffy on scheduling. They tried hard, um, and uh, you know, there's some good people involved in that organization, but it was just a little bit too... Uh, uh, too chancy. I won't say risky. Risky is not the right concept, but it was just a little bit too uh, uh, chancy for me. And uh, um, uh, I'm, I'm happy that I own an airplane by myself now. Let's put it that way. I, sh- I, should, say, I should say almost as an aside that uh, um, although I haven't heard the podcast yet, <laughs> um, our friend Steve Tupper over at the Airspeed podcast, who mm-hmm. is in fact a lawyer when he's on the ground uh, and uh, is going to be talking in his podcast about some of the legal issues of owning your own airplane, he gave us a heads up that uh, one of the things he's going to counsel people in the podcast is that partnership, the legal entity of partnership, is not the good, the, the right way, the ideal way to share ownership of an airplane. And uh, he's going to suggest some other ways. Um, he also he went, went even further to say you shouldn't even refer to it as a partnership or as my partners or that kind of thing. But uh, yeah. but I, I direct people to the Airspeed podcast for more detail on that. We're probably going to keep referring to it as partnerships. Um, I'm sorry, I interrupted somebody. Jeb, uh, Mike, and, and Dave, yeah. have, you, uh, have you ever been in an airplane partnership? We came close on that uh, little Cherokee 140. A uh, co-worker of mine at the time, uh, commercial pilot, instrument rated, uh, he seriously considered coming into the in, in and buying half the airplane with us but in the discussions the day that we did the demo flight uh, started rolling off the, the trips that Annie and I had already planned on taking uh-huh. in the coming few months it's like I'm going to get my ticket done in the next month and then we're going to take a trip on Labor Day, and then we're going to take a trip uh, in October, and I'm going to fly it up uh, uh, here, and then Thanksgiving, and then we're going to use it to go home at Christmas. He said, you're going to do freelance work in it, too. And I said, yeah. He says, airplane's never going to be around for me to fly. That's right. 
And that was kind of an epiphany for me to realize that it really wasn't going to be fair uh, uh, if he was subject to me needing it for, for work trips even. So uh, we decided to go it alone. And since it was an experiment, that is an experiment, and would we use it as God intended, as the Wright brothers intended airplanes to be used? And would we integrate it into our life and become part of a community and and do work trips in it uh, when we could and personal trips in it when we could? We bought less airplane than we could realistically afford because if uh, it didn't work out, you know, we get two years down the road and, you know, the the, 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 the sheen is worn off, the novelty is gone, and you know, we're not making the trips out to the airport, uh, then we wouldn't have that much tied up in it. If it sat more, we wouldn't feel bad about the investment. And it would probably be pretty easy to sell because it was an ideal primary and instrument trainer. Mm-hmm. And when we turned around to sell it uh, two years later and move up to the Comanche, because we were using the airplane, and we decided maybe we should buy what we can afford and pick up the extra 35 knots. Uh, the airplane sold pretty quickly. Uh, we'd put 340 hours on it in two years. We'd fixed a few things. We'd upgraded a couple of things here and there. And uh, the airplane we bought for $18,000 two years later sold for 25. And we got back everything we'd spent on the airplane, owning it, insurance, flying wow. it, except 3000 bucks. It cost hmm. us 3000 bucks to own that airplane for two years and thri- fly 340 hours. Cool. That's, I got, that's, a, that's a bargain. I got a couple dollars for you to invest for me, Dave. That's, that's uh, nice it, it was just a steal. Uh, we had almost as good a luck when we sold the, uh, the Comanche. Yeah. Mike, I get the feeling that you have not been in, in a partnership for any of your airplanes. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So, as we've mentioned earlier, Mike, um, a, a big part of your work these days, and certainly of your expertise, is in the area of maintenance and maintenance issues. Um, talking, going back again to the whole subject of pre-purchase inspections, uh, what, what sort of, how do you counsel people? What are the, what are the, what's the advice you give someone on this subject when they come to you? Well, it's it's a very important uh, uh, area, and it's a place where a lot of of uh, uh, prospective buyers get into trouble. Um, I think Dave already mentioned one of what's probably the, the, the three most important aspects of a pre-buy from my standpoint, and that is that, that the pre-buy needs to be done by uh, someone who has no history with the airplane and no history with the seller, uh, somebody who is completely independent. Um, a, a lot of uh, owners make the mistake, or uh, uh, buyers make the mistake, of of having of allowing the pre-buy to be done by somebody who has some history with the airplane. And um, if you think about it, that 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 kind of uh, undermines the objectivity of the pre-buy because if if uh, if a mechanic did the last annual on an airplane. Um, He's going to be predisposed to assume that the airplane's fine, and and furthermore, if he did find something seriously wrong, it it it, it sort of means he didn't do a very good annual. So, uh, you, you really need to make sure that the pre-buy is done by somebody who is is uh, completely independent uh, and has no prior relationship either with the airplane or with the seller of the airplane. So yeah, it's you, really different when somebody, a mechanic, is seeing an airplane for the first time. 
the things that they're apt to pick up on visually. Uh, uh, you know, looking at the logbooks, it's not going to be, oh, yeah, I remember doing that. That was fine, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Because it's, you got it's really ADs. a matter of. It's really you got a matter ADs of to worry about, and uh, and and you got the that whole question of general condition, and somebody that's never seen it before is going to pick up stuff. I think that uh, a more familiar mechanic might not. Yeah, go yeah. ahead, Mike. Yeah, I was going to say it's really a matter of of psychology. Uh, you when you when you have a pre buy done, you want the inspector to approach the airplane uh, with an attitude of total skepticism. <laughs> Yeah. And if, if if he has a prior relationship with the airplane, that's not likely to happen. So that, that I think that's one of the the, the real important uh, things. The second element I think is um, uh, that you need to find a mechanic to do the pre buy who is e- experienced as possible with that particular make and model. Um, yes. It's it's uh, I, I like to I I usually use the phrase uh, a mechanic who has high time and type if you will. <laughs> That's a good way um, to put it. That's exactly because right. uh, total experience of a mechanic is much less important than his intimate familiarity with the particular make and model. Um, there is there is no way that an inspector can inspect the entire aircraft even in an annual inspection, much less in a pre buy. So, given the fact that the pre-buy is going to be done in a very limited amount of time, um, it's it's absolutely essential that the inspector know where to look for trouble. And and the only way he's going to do that is if he is familiar enough with the with the particular make and model that he knows all of the Achilles heels. And and every different make and model has has different things. If it's a twin Cessna. It's the exhaust system that we're looking at. If it's a, if it's a Mooney, uh, that he he needs to know that that there are boots in the, in the uh, wheel wells uh, where water collects and you can have corrosion, uh, serious structural corrosion underneath the boots and you have to look lift them up and look underneath it. Um, if it's a single engine Cessna, the the gear system has a design which is. Uh, Baroque to be charitable, and and, and re- requires a lot of expertise to uh, and and if there's something wrong with it, uh, you can get into into very very big. Bucks. You're talking so, about a single engine retractable Cessna, yeah, yeah. But 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 every 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 make and model has its own uh, set of 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 uh, trouble points, and what's key is that the mechanic that's chosen to do the pre buy. Uh, have enough familiarity with that particular make and model that he really knows where where to look for trouble, because he can't look everywhere in in the time that's allotted to a pre buy. I'd echo that. Um, I participate uh, as Mike does in the uh, Beach Bonanza and Baron owners uh, email list, um, and it's once a week. Um, you'll see someone post a request as you know. Either they or someone they know is looking to buy uh, a, a beach, a Bonanza or a Baron, and uh, it's of course in a distant location, and um, they're casting around for does does anybody know a mechanic, uh, an, uh, an IA uh, in such and such an area uh, who's familiar with Bonanzas or Barons who can do a pre-buy. And that's exactly the que- kind of question to ask. It's the first of several questions, but it's exactly the kind of question to ask. Uh, when one's considering uh, getting a pre-buy on an airplane with which they're not familiar. 
Well, when finding uh, in in both of our airplane buys, we were fortunate to know mechanics that were familiar, had time and type, as Mike so so nicely put it. Uh, and uh, when we contacted them, like uh, the fellow that did the Cherokee, we contacted him, and he said, "I'll call you back when I've got the AD list." which to me was a winner of a response. Uh-huh. First thing he was going to go do is check the list of airworthiness directives for that make and model and serial number. Uh, when we started shopping to Comanche, my, my good friend down at Dead Cow, the leprechaun, uh, you know, he had the same approach, and we actually flew a couple of hundred miles down in Oklahoma to take a look at a Comanche. Uh, Earl and uh, my wife Annie and I flew down in his 48 Bonanza, and uh, we spent an afternoon down there. Uh, I flew the airplane with Earl in the back seat, and he spent about three hours, uh, including uh, lunchtime, going over the logbooks. After which, the, you know, two experiences: the logbooks and the flight in the airplane. Uh, a little briefing with Earl. We got back in the Bonanza and went home. Yeah, yeah. it was not a deal. It was not going to be a deal. Uh, it was going to be a major intensive uh, uh, piece of ownership from the get-go. And fortunately, we, we were fairly well-armed with some of the information before we went because we tracked down the prior owner huh. and spent two hours with him on the phone the night before. Now, the airplane happened to be in the hands of a, uh, a, a an airplane used car lot. And I'm not kidding here, folks. This is straight out of WKRP in Cincinnati. Uh, met a salesman who was about 32 years old who was wearing white patent leather shoes and a white patent leather belt with Dacron slacks and a rayon shirt. I was oh, like, man. oh, my God, where have we gone back in time? And uh, they wanted to st- they had stolen the airplane from the prior owner. And then they marked it up 50%, and it needed even more work than that mm-hmm. in the long term just to go out the door. But it was pretty, and it yeah. had a new three-blade prop that uh-huh, leaked uh-huh. like a sieve, and magnetos <laughs> that could barely keep the you know that could barely stay on at the same time, and an autopilot that just spontaneously decided when we were on a 180 heading with the autopilot engaged. Must have smelled something in Colorado and decided it wanted to go that away, <laughs> and did so quite promptly. What's your third item on the pre-purchase? Yeah, list? yeah. The 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 other uh, the other issue. Um, and Dave, uh, before I go to the third one, uh, I just wanted to to comment that Dave um, alluded to something I think is really important. To underscore, and and that is that that that. Uh, a good pre-buy spends at least half of the time looking at the paperwork trail of the airplane as opposed to the airplane itself. Uh, and, in, and in fact, it's very, very common that you would decide to walk away from an airplane without ever actually looking at the airplane simply on the basis of, of, uh, of the paper trail. Uh, and, of course, you can, you can do that part of the pre-buy with, without – moving the airplane anywhere so clearly you want to have the 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 log books carefully reviewed before you start uh you know taking cowlings off and stuff because you you may not have to go that far uh, if the That's if right. the log books tell a tale that 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 is is not uh 
that is not good, you, 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 you aren't going to want to go any further. Uh, the third item that, that I wanted to talk about a little bit with regard to pre-buys, uh, and this is sort of a controversial one. There's a lot of, a lot of different opinions on this, uh, and I have mine. <laughs> um, but but that's, that's the, uh, that has to do with... Then you're with the only the opinionated s- person here in the hangar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I'm sorry. That Mike. has to, to do with what the scope... Of a, of a pre-buy should be, um, uh, if you will, how, how much time should it take, how, how thorough should it be, and so on. And there's a school of thought, which, which I would like to reject out of hand, that, that says that the best pre-buy is, is an annual inspection. Uh, and I, I've, heard, I've heard people say that a lot of times. Um, in, in my view, uh, a pre-buy should never be an annual inspection, should never even be remotely close to an annual inspection. And I say that for two reasons. Uh, first of all, um, in, in my view, the purpose of the pre-buy is, to, is, is not to assure that the airplane is perfect. If, if you are looking for a perfect airplane, you're going to walk away from an awful lot of good ones. Mm-hmm. Um, be, because you know the the enemy of of, uh, of good is great. <laughs> um, the the real purpose of a pre buy, in my view, is to um, uh, avoid the the, the five thousand and fifty thousand dollar mistakes, not to avoid the fifty dollar and five hundred dollar mistakes. Um, you, you're looking for the big stuff, the the the, the showstoppers. And it, to, to me, it's not only a waste of, of money and energy to uh, let a pre-buy get down to the, the little bitty details, but it also is very likely to cause uh, the buyer to walk away from airplanes that w- would have been you know, very good candidates to, to buy. Um, as I said, uh, to, to me, the, the purpose of a pre-buy is to avoid the big ticket problems either well, to avoid them or to identify them so that you can negotiate uh, you know a price Thank adjustment you. or with, with, yeah, with the exactly. seller yeah um, but the other that, that, the other okay the other the other issue about why a a, a pre-buy should never be an annual inspection is that from the seller standpoint uh, any seller that allows a pre-buy to be an annual inspection or an inspection of any kind in the sense that uh, the word inspection in part 43 of the regs is out of his mind. If, yeah. if, you know, when, if you're the seller of an airplane and a prospective buyer is doing a pre-buy and the pre-buy is being done by a mechanic of the, of the prospective buyer's choice, and that mechanic inspects the airplane and finds a whole bunch of problems. Um, you don't, you as a seller, don't want to be in a position where your airplane is grounded or where it's being held hostage, uh, because the inspection is being done by 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 somebody that you didn't choose, typically even in a location that you didn't choose. And the last thing in the world you want to do is have your airplane get stuck in that situation. Uh, to me, a, a, a pre-buy should never be treated as an inspection. And as a seller of an aircraft, I would consent to a pre-buy only on the explicit, preferably written understanding by whoever it is who 
the purchaser has chosen to do the inspection or to do the pre-buy, that this will not be handled as an inspection, that there will not be any logbook entries, regardless of what is found, uh, that, that no documentary record will be made of, of the pre-buy with, in terms of, of uh, aircraft maintenance records, that, that the, the, the pre-buy is a look-see. It's not an inspection. And the, the, the person who is doing the pre-buy will report his findings to the prospective buyer, but it won't ever go further than that. Because, you know, most buyers who look at airplanes don't buy them, <laughs> uh, you yeah. know, and, and as a seller, you don't want to be in a position where you have some looky-loo doing a pre-buy on your airplane and then you wind up getting stuck. <laughs> so it, it's, it's really important, in my view, that, that the pre-buy be handled in the right way and that it definitely not be an inspection in the sense of, of, uh, of the that meaning of that word in the regulations. Yeah. Well, and it, it, you, you brought up a combination of things here that kind of converge with some advice I gave a friend a few months ago who was looking at buying a nice used airplane. Uh, and he, you know, kind of labored over selecting what kind of airplane to buy, what to buy, before he started shopping for the right one. And he called me up. He'd found a good candidate at a fair value. And when he talked to the seller about scheduling a pre-purchase, the seller wanted him to beg off, or you know, wanted him to take a pass on a pre-purchase because he said, "I'm going to deliver it with a fresh annual." <laughs> yeah. And I said, "Well, you know, a fresh annual is wonderful. That's worth some money." But at the same time, you know, that's not your guy looking at the airplane and doing a pre-purchase. Right. And uh, when uh, the seller kind of indicated some resistance to a pre-purchase by an independent mechanic, my buddy called me back and he said, it's an awfully good deal. What do you think I ought to do? I said, put your hand on your wallet, turn, and run like hell. Really? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, uh, you know, you know anybody an that let you look at the logbooks and let you look at the airplane and wants to tell you, hey, it's just had an annual and you're good to go, uh, I don't know. It just gives me a bad vibration. Right. Uh, I mean, the, the purpose of a pre-buy and the purpose of an annual are two separate things. The purpose of an annual is to ascertain that the aircraft is airworthy. The purpose of a pre-buy is to ascertain the aircraft is one you want to buy. Those are two different questions. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is a deal represented. Yeah. Uh, Mike, uh, go ahead, Mike, Jeb, and then I'm going to try and move yeah. us along here. Describe your ideal pre-buy. What, what would it consist of? Um, um, in, in a, you know, what on the airplane would you look at? What would you open up? Um, what would you uh, uh, just kind of eyeball and, and uh, assess from that standpoint? Well, I, you know, the, I, I realize, I I realize was, it kind of depends on the airplane, but. That, that's that's the that's the whole point. That that the answer to your question is intensely type specific, and right. so uh, you know the, I don't know how to answer that question. If you said, you know, what would you do on a pre-buy of a Cessna 310? I could give you a very specific answer mm -hmm. because I know what the 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 big ticket weaknesses of a Cessna 310 are, and I would say that that you you need to inspect the exhaust system extremely carefully you need to check the landing gear rigging very very carefully because the, the these airplanes have 
have a serious history of landing gear collapses and big problems with rigging. I would say that that you'd need to do a very thorough corrosion inspection, particularly in the flap wells in uh, aft of the exhaust uh, 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 trails of the engines. But those are all very uh, twin Cessna specific things, and every different airplane is is going to have its own set of things. You know, if it's a debonair, you probably want to take a really close look at the at the uh, the, the the wing spar carry through section. Oh, which yeah. which is not something you'd look at in a twin Cessna. So it's 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 very very type specific, and and that's the reason that that the pre buy needs to be done by a mechanic who knows that particular make and model like the back of his hand, so he knows what to look at. Well, but there's some elements that would seem to be common to a thorough pre-purchase. I mean, you mentioned a couple of them, Mike. We have collectively one's an AD list specific to that type and serial number. Uh, the other is the mechanic spending the early part and a lot of the time just going through the paperwork and the logbooks and the history of the airplane. And then looking at whatever his experience in the logbooks and the AD list bring to mind the stuff that you really should look at on that particular type of airplane. And we're not talking about a drive-through, you know, for folks who think that this could, is, can be a quick and dirty process. We're not talking about a drive-through process here. Uh, inspection covers are going to need to come off some of it. Seats may need to come out. Floorboards may need to come up. Uh, you know, you might want to put it up on jacks and swing the gear if it's a retract. But those three elements, an AD list, Boku time looking at the paperwork and in the uh, mechanical visual inspection that goes with uh, goes with backing up what what experience dictates. Uh, I think those were common to all of them. Yeah. Well, we could obviously talk for hours and hours about the whole pre-buy because it's it's an important and and very big field. But but let's move along a little bit here. So so you've just bought a new airplane and or bought an airplane new to you. Um, and uh, not talking for a minute about maintenance issues, what's the lifestyle like of owning an airplane? How is it different when you own your airplane versus when you rent it or borrow airplanes? You're a lot poorer. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Peanut butter and jelly for a year. Okay. Well, there must be some fun parts, too. Well, for one thing, there's an airplane, <laughs> yeah, there's an airplane there available to you anytime you want to go out and turn the key. Uh-huh. Exactly right. And what is you know, the, there's no no call on a scheduler, no you know facing the oh it's already booked response. Yeah. It, it, Mike, Jeb, you have any thoughts on this? I mean, well, it, it, there must be a reason to do this. If it's more expensive and it's a big pain in the neck to right. to decide pick your airplane, why buy airplanes? Dave touched on this, and and, and uh, I didn't really get it get around to talking about my ownership, uh, my my current airplane, but. Uh, um, Two hundred and some odd hours in in uh, in two years of ownership kind of kind of says it all. I think uh, the the owner uh, of an aircraft, the new owner of an aircraft, put it that way, is going to find him uh, him or herself flying the airplane uh, more than they anticipated. Uh, the, the simple fact that it's it's there, it's available, it's it's waiting on you, it's ready to go means you will find and I'm not just you know talking about you know a hundred dollar hamburgers or or things like that but you'll find real substantial justifiable reasons to use the airplane that you had not considered before amen uh, amen uh, um, whether it's business transportation personal transportation uh, uh, whatever 
um, or, or in fact, you know, uh, uh, recreation, vacations, whatever, uh, you'll base them around the airplane more than you ever thought possible. You'll use the airplane to uh, uh, get from point A to point B where the airlines don't serve. Um, you'll, you'll simply be using it more than you really ever thought possible. Uh, like Dave, um, um, I put uh, a, a lot more hours on my airplane the first couple of years I owned it uh, than I ever thought I would. Uh, I think the, the first year alone I put over 200 hours on it. Um, since I've owned the airplane... Uh, I bought it in 99, so we're talking right now eight and a half years. Uh, I've put at least 1,200 hours on it. Well, uh, we had a strange uh, we had a strange realization when we moved from Cherokee to Comanche uh-huh. and picked up all this speed. And, uh, you know, when we went that away, we kind of rationalized it in per mile cost and time en route to some of our common destinations and said, we move up. We'll spend less per hour flying in a lot of ways because we'll get there faster. We'll spend less money because we'll have to fly fewer hours to cover the same territory. (laughs) Much to our surprise, we started using that extra potential to Mm go trips and and into territories and on distances that we wouldn't have tackled in those periods of time. We wound up flying the airplane more. We averaged 165, 170 hours a year for eight years with the Comanche. Yeah. yeah, it's it's important uh, to to consider that for most owners, anybody who doesn't inf- fly some insane number of hours a year, um, the majority of the costs of owning an airplane are fixed costs rather than variable costs. In other Very words, in, in other words, the air, the aircraft is costing you money whether you fly it or not. So there are a couple of different ways of looking at that. The way I look at it is, you're crazy not to fly That's it. Right. It's costing That's you right. money. Sitting there in the hangar, so you know, uh, so so you you know, the insurance is costing you money, the hangar is costing you money, the annual inspections are costing you money, whether or not you fly the airplane. So letting the airplane sit is crazy. On the other hand, I'm amazed at how. I mean, I fly my airplane. I probably do three to four coast to coast trips a year in my airplane. Um, I'm amazed at how few aircraft owners that I talk to uh, fly their airplane any significant difference distance. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they, they, they do this, this calculation that is absolutely beyond me that says, well, it's cheaper to go the airlines. I can't justify taking the airplane. Right. Well, in, right. in my view, if you do that calculation, the results of the calculation should be you shouldn't own the airplane. I mean, yeah. I, I, it seems to me that that if you're going to be an aircraft owner, you don't ever want to use the J word. You never want to talk <laughs> Absolutely. about justify Absolutely. because nobody can justify owning an aircraft. It's it's not a justifiable thing. Well, uh, any, any 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 more than skiing is justifiable. How do you <laughs> how do you justify? It's something well, you want to do. So if it, you you decide you buy you you want to own an airplane, then you should fly the living hell out of it. Well, we found out. The hard way. There was one year where we took two international trips, and I got my instrument rating all in that same year, and it pushed our usage up to over 260 hours for the year. Right. And at the end of the year, when we tallied up all the costs—insurance, the note, hangar, uh, fuel, maintenance. 
that the lowest cost per hour year we ever had right. was the year that we flew the airplane the most mm-hmm. because it so diluted all the fixed costs sure. that all we wound up paying extra for was variable cost, and the variable cost covered the cost of us going to the places we wanted to go to. So we made a trip to the Cayman Islands, and we flew down through Mexico to Cancun for a 10-day trip. Uh, now, admittedly, some of this is a little bit more adventurous than even going you know, coast to coast, but uh, uh, we learned from some good people. And we sat down at the end of the year and says, you know, what, somebody asked us, what's it cost per hour? And the accountant shot me back what the airplane account had been. And we did the simple math and was like, holy cow, that's the lowest we've spent per hour since we bought the airplane. And it made us even more devoted to using the airplane as much as humanly and meteorologically possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't hesitate. I mean, when I talk about going somewhere or visiting someplace or basically just traveling, it is assumed, at least by me, that I'm taking the airplane. Yeah. yeah. Uh, only, only on rare occasions, uh, mainly involving um, um, how I'm going to get back or uh, um, um, I'm, I'm on too tight a schedule or uh, I, I, I'm going too far in too short a time or something like that, will an airline uh, come into the play? I've only I've only made one trip by airline in the last four years, and and that one was to Australia, and and I seriously <laughs> considered it, but I, <laughs> even if you'd I had the time, you'd have found the way. <laughs> Did you do the calculation to figure out how big the tanks uh, would have? <laughs> let me uh, let me ask a devil's advocate question here for a second. Um, so so now you've own you own your own airplane. You're going to do almost all of your flying in this one particular airplane. Aren't you in fact limiting your learning curve, your learning ability here? I mean, wouldn't you become a better pilot by flying lots of different airplanes? No question. I mean, what, but who says you mean owning the airplane pilot? means you don't get to fly others? Yeah. What do you mean by becoming a better pilot? I guess I don't know question. what what makes one a better pilot. I, I I'm, I'm yeah. that, that's practice. that's a fascinating question because uh, on, on on one hand um, uh, you are cutting down the variety of your flying a great deal, and on the other hand, as as an air, I mean, like for example, I've owned my airplane for for 21 years. Um, I have flown it in every conceivable kind of of weather. Uh, I earned my A and P and IA certificate, swinging wrenches on it, and uh, at this point, I feel like I am the master of this piece of machinery in a, in a way that I think very, very few people uh, ever achieve. Um, there is probably uh, almost nothing on this airplane I haven't taken apart into little bitty pieces and put back together, and I know the airplane as thoroughly as it's possible to know it. So uh, there's just different kinds of of, of learning. Um, my my 21 years flying the same airplane has certainly not been devoid of learning. It's just a different kind of learning than had I flown 20 different airplanes over those 20 years. And 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 to follow this up, expand on the same idea. I think Mike's 100% right. But when you own an airplane, and as Mike put it, you fly the hell out of it. When you fly that regularly. You become a better aviator, a smoother aviator, more relaxed, more, 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 more competent, uh, more capable. And you don't lose that when you sit down in the seat of something different. 
you you need to learn necessarily, you know, some new numbers, some new runway capabilities, new V speeds. Uh, You'll naturally pick up the difference in tactile uh, aspects of flying it. But all of that smarts that you bring and all that smooth and all that decision making and the judgment that only comes from experience, that goes with you regardless. And here's here's the way some of that works. Anyway, um, you get so accustomed to flying that single uh, individual airplane that you don't think about it. Instead, you think about the weather, or you think about uh, the approach you're going to make, or you think about the, the airspace you're about to enter. Um, you think about uh, uh, well, should I deviate around that thunderstorm to the left or to the right? Or, or not at all. And instead of worrying about flying the airplane, the airplane is flying the airplane becomes second nature. It's, That's it, right. The it, two of you almost, become one. Exactly. It's almost like wearing a, a, a glove. You're, you're way you're further ahead of the airplane than you ever had been before. Um, it's it's basically quite, and quite literally a no brainer. You're not really using that many CPU cycles to think about how to fly the airplane. Yeah, no, I, Instead, you're thinking about uh, where you want the airplane to be, uh, how you're going to deal with this challenge or that challenge. If you were flying a lot of other airplanes, say in a club or uh, renting from the FBO or something like that, uh, each time you get into the airplane, it might have been you know six weeks or so uh, since you last flew it. And you're trying, all right, now that COM2 is a little scratchy, I remember. Um, and um, you know, the, the, that, that fuel flow needle wiggles a little bit, but it's not a problem. And, uh, uh, oh, yeah, the nose wheel shimmies a little bit. Things like that that you're going to spend time and in, in CPU cycles remembering are not an issue in your own airplane. Jack, let me ask you a rhetorical question. Okay. Uh, if you sold your automobile... And drove nothing but rental cars. Would you be a better driver for doing that? <laughs> well, there's no hope of making me a better now, driver. There's <laughs> a, boy, it's that an is ex- a great analogy. Ex- excellent analogy, Mike, yeah. Point that taken. Great Point analogy. Taken. A thought came to me while Dave was talking a while back on a, on a subject kind of related to the what we've been talking about, about purchase. That's good because and, there's usually no thought involved in, when from, from his perspective. I was going to say I usually have other kinds of thoughts when Dave talks, but go and, ahead. and I and I, I wanted to I wanted to bring it up. Um, um, That's good. Mike's just going to barge on. He's just not. Aware of it. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mike. Go Mike. Ahead. I'm sorry, Mike. Go ahead. Go ahead. Am I supposed to pay any attention to you, or am I just supposed no, to say no, what's on my mind? <laughs> you've learned much more quickly than most Mike, of our we've guests. We've learned not to pay much attention to them anyway. Yeah, so. you, well, you've learned very quickly that it's best to not pay any attention to us. Go ahead, Mike. I'm, we're sorry. The, the, the subject that I wanted to bring up is um, uh, has to do with, with, with how to buy a, uh, a pre-owned airplane. And um, my approach... To that, in one regard, is 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 pretty different than I think what most uh, prospective buyers are, and that is that that for me, the best way to to buy uh, a used airplane is to look for an airplane that has a runout engine, has uh, a paint that's fifteen or twenty years old, and an interior that's in serious need of work. And that is uh, corrosion-free and mechanically sound and has a good paper trail. In other words, uh, looking for an airplane where 
the cosmetics may not be so hot, but the the uh, the, the basic airframe and its paper trail are are excellent. And um, and my preference would be uh, to buy an airplane with a run-out engine. That is an engine that's that's at or beyond TBO. And, and the reason is that when you buy an airplane that way, you, you typically buy it at a discounted price. And then with the money you save doing that, you get to overhaul the engine the way you want to. You get to paint the airplane the colors you want. You get to do the interior the way your wife wants it done, uh, and you and, and you wind up with the airplane that, that you want. Um, the thing that drives me absolutely crazy is our, our, our owners who want to sell their airplane. And so what do they do? They, they put a fresh engine in it. They, they, uh, they do the paint in the interior, make it look really pretty, and then put it on the market for, for a high price. And airplanes like that tend to attract a lot of prospective buyers, particularly naive ones. But from my standpoint, first of all, why should I buy the an airplane with a with with the colors and the interior that that the seller decided on rather than the ones that that I want? And second of all, if the seller overhauled the engine, um, knowing that he was going to sell the airplane. I have to kind of wonder whether it was a ship and dip kind of a kind of an overhaul. I mean, what is his motivation? Uh, it seems to me that it's much better for the buyer to do that stuff than the seller to do that stuff. When that, so, when that, when that seller was presented with a choice, for example, he had a soft cylinder. What do you think he was going to do? Do you think he was going to say put it back on, or do you think he was going to say no? I'll spend the extra money. Let's get a new cylinder. Exactly. And of course, that's the, that's also the issue with the with the fresh annual. <laughs> uh, oh, exactly right. Uh, yeah, because you just have to question the motives, uh, whether explicit or implicit, the the motives of the seller who knows he's getting rid of the airplane. Uh, it's much better for the buyer to be doing that stuff than the seller. I would much rather have the seller make a big price concession so that I, as a buyer, can can do all of that stuff. You, you you echo advice that was given to me years ago by a, a much more experienced aircraft owner than I'll ever be, whose advice was settle on what you want and then go out and find the best deal you can in a fixer-upper and fix it up to suit you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you get it at the right price as a fixer-upper, you'll never be sorry and you'll always have the airplane that you want. That's right. I'm curious about the the uh, the decision process, the think, thought process about upgrading your airplane. So you already own. We've talked sort of in the context of buying your first airplane. So now you already own an airplane. You've had it for a while, and uh, why up why upgrade your airplane? And so let me ask it this way, um, Jeb, for example, why did you buy the Debonair? You, what did you own before the Debonair? I didn't own anything uh, at the time I bought the Debonair. The only real ownership uh, experience I'd had had been the uh, the, pre, the aforementioned partnership uh, oh, okay. situation. Um, the Debonair I bought was owned by some very close friends then, uh, close friends then, and close friends now. Um, and uh, I was familiar with the airplane. I'd flown uh, in both in the airplane and, and solo the airplane, uh, and. Uh, I was at the point in my life, in my career, where owning an airplane sounded like a great idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, this particular airplane um, kind of fit a lot of different uh, uh, bills. It, it it was fast enough. It carried enough load. Uh, it had been uh, decently maintained. 
um, it, 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 the engine wasn't uh, high time, it wasn't low time, it was kind of mid time, but it was uh, a quality overhaul. Um, the avionics in it were serviceable, um, but they weren't uh, um, the latest and greatest. The paint was starting to kind of peel, the, the interior was starting to look a little bit ratty. All of this stuff, though, was, was serviceable. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the appeal of, of that particular airplane at that particular time was that I could fly it and, and take my time at making it into something that was mine, that reflected my wants and desires, as, as Mike so, so uh, succinctly pointed out. Um, but at the same time, I didn't have to do all that work at, at the same time. I didn't have to do it all at once to make it a reliable airplane. It already was a reliable airplane. It just wasn't – it had it had a lot of potential. Let's put it that way. Oh, and it's so, realized most of that potential in your hands, too. It's a gorgeous well, well, bird. Yeah. Thank you. Thank that you is. for that. So, did, um, Go ahead, Jeb. No, I, I was just going to say, um, over the, the first couple of years uh, I had the airplane, uh, the panel got redone. Um, over the next couple of years, um, uh, I made uh, uh, I did the uh, did the paint. Uh, a couple of years after that, um, I did the engine uh, and the interior, and uh, the airplane has pretty much stayed in that configuration ever since. Uh, it took six years, I guess, by the calendar to get it uh, to the point where. Uh, or, or five years anyway, to get it to that point. But it stayed pretty much the same since then. I'm very comfortable with it. I'm very happy with it. Yeah. Dave, why did you upgrade from your uh, earlier airplane to your Comanche? Well, the as mentioned before, the, the need for speed was an experiment. And when we realized that we really would use the airplane, then we started looking at time and, and dollars spent uh, and time. <laughs> I, it, not, not, nothing endears you to the better half more than having to spend 11 and a half hours in an airplane to get from Wichita to Lakeland and make two fuel stops, get there in the dark and still have to pitch a tent. <laughs> and when we started running the difference in speed that we needed and the cost increase uh, in terms of buying an airplane – and, but then looked in terms of now we make Lakeland one stop, and we do it in under seven hours, and we leave after sunrise, and we get there well before dark, and we're setting up the tent in the light. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't a hard sell. It, like Mike said, it was a need for speed. Uh, what's what's surprising? And we we shopped specifically to a dollar a dollar range, a budget that we could afford, and then narrowed what that would get us to the airplanes that gave us the best bang for the buck in terms of speed increase and payload. And we wound up, uh, in this particular case, with the uh, the Comanche 180 that we bought. And it very much was like Jeb just described uh, his Debbie. Uh, the fundamentals were there. Uh, it did have a low-time engine. Uh, the prop had been overhauled a couple of hundred hours before that. Uh, original interior, uh, it had been painted once, but in the original paint scheme. Uh, the basics were there, but it needed some TLC and some upgrades. And, and over the uh, course of the first uh, two or three years, we did stuff like, uh, we for, well, first annual, we got a call from the shop. They pulled it from 20 degrees into a heated shop. And as the temperature changed, one of the windshield halves started to crack. 
Hmm. It was original equipment, uh-huh. 61 airplane, and this is 1997. Uh, so we decided right then and there to go to a one-piece quarter-inch windshield. Right. Just be done with it. Because uh, otherwise we were going to have to replace both halves, and the cost difference wasn't that big. And eventually we put a new prop, a uh, new interior. We did some speed mods, sound insulation. We wound up with a faster, quieter, more comfortable airplane. New interior was uh, a labor of love. Uh, we were able to do that with uh, some help from some friends. Uh, long and short of it was by the time we had it 90% the way we wanted it, it was a fairly fast, very fuel efficient, very mm-hmm. comfortable to sit in for a long time. 180 horse airplane. We get 140 odd knots. Uh, we put electronic ignition on it, which paid for itself in fuel savings in about three years. Uh, we were getting 140 plus knots on about nine and a half gallons an hour because of the ignition system and the speed mods. Uh, we could go Wichita to Leesburg, Virginia to visit the in laws in one stop and hit my hometown midway and have lunch with my parents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mike, now, so your upgrade situation, um, at least in one way, was is very different. Um, you went from single to twin. Um, what, what were the issues you considered when you decided to upgrade to your current airplane? It was a while ago, I know, but you can probably remember a little bit of it. It was a, a, a t- total loss of sanity, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, too, too much time at high altitude. <laughs> I, 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 I have a. I, I actually have developed a, a, a presentation that I do from time to time at AirVenture called "Do You Really Want to Own a Twin?" Uh-huh. That spent that spends an hour explaining why you really don't want to. Twin. Yet you've kept uh, it for twenty years. Well, that's true. It's uh, uh, it's called the tyranny of the status quo. <laughs> uh, and, and, and actually, to, to be honest with you, Jack, for, for about the last five years, I've sort of been uh, looking to to move to a single. I just haven't quite found the right single yet, and and I haven't obviously I haven't been looking real hard. <laughs> but um, uh, the the um, it, the, the the true story of how I wound up with the twin was that 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 twenty years ago I was go- looking through Tradeplane, uh, looking for a high performance turbocharged single engine airplane to buy, and uh, you, you know how that goes. It, when you're when, when when you're looking in Tradeplane, it's really hard to keep your eyes from straying into the <laughs> yeah. you know the King Airs and the Citations and things that you know you're never going to buy. And my eyes strayed into the twin Cesta part of of Tradeplane, and uh, it was um, 1987 that I was looking for this airplane, and it was absolutely the rock bottom of the twin market. Except maybe now, I'm not sure. But it was when, when we were having a big fuel crisis, and and nobody wanted twins, and they were literally giving them away. And I discovered that you could, you know, buy a uh, a, a really uh, clean, uh, known ice turbo 310 for less money than a really good Bonanza. <laughs> and uh, I thought, you know, boy, this is the this is the my one chance to to, to get a twin. And and you know, if I don't like it, I can sell it, and 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 I'm I'm not going to lose any money on deal because the market can't go get any lower than it is. And of course, I was actually right about that. I, I wound up buying it right at the bottom of the market. The, the only problem was once I bought it, I just couldn't bring myself to sell it again. Um, 
So uh, it, well, I, I got into that airplane more by accident than anything else. Uh, but, you know, now I've had it for 21 years. I've got more sweat, sweat equity in that airplane than I can possibly uh, measure. And uh, it, it's, it's hard to imagine uh, not owning it at this point. I've just had it for so long, and it's been, you know, a part of the family. Well, we could go on forever and ever talking about this stuff. Um, we probably ought to start thinking about wrapping it up. Uh, is there any subject we haven't touched on that we really shouldn't stop, we shouldn't finish without touching on? Somebody asked me once when we were still in the throes of aircraft ownership if there was a rule of thumb for what they should budget, you know, depending on how much they were going to spend, what they were going to finance, and so Good forth. Question. And the rule of thumb that worked out for us was developed by comparing what our monthly net was to meet the mortgage, if you will, versus the total cost of ownership. And so this is strictly personal, and I've passed it on to a couple of people because they've asked. But for us, it worked out to be somewhere in the neighborhood of two and a half to three times what the monthly payment was to encompass the average overall additional cost, hangar or tie-down, insurance, maintenance, and then operating costs were you know, strictly by how much you flew it. But it worked out to be a little bit more than two and a half times. Now, part of that was because we bought cheap and and uh, we had some pretty good fuel prices and ridiculously low hangar rent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so your 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 performance, as they say, may vary. If you if you live in some place where hangers are seven hundred or a thousand dollars a month, uh, I can guarantee you you're going to spend a higher multiple than that because you can buy a lot of really old airplanes, really nice airplanes, very inexpensively, and wind up with twenty year notes that are ridiculously easy on a month to month. But the question, when it's asked to me, reflects a, a, a realization that. Buying into the airplane is only the beginning of the uh, of the of the ride. That you really need to think out as you're doing this. What it's going to cost you to insure it. What it's going to cost you to at least tie it down. And if you're going to tie it down, you're going to want to spring money for a cover to protect that interior and those radios and and on and on. So thinking a little bit ahead about the total cost can save you from uh, being airplane poor. Better to buy a little bit less airplane and have the money to fly it then buy more airplane than you can afford and wind up not flying it much because you're already spending so much just to have it sit there. Yeah. There's another there's another rule of thumb that's been around for a long time and that every time I've actually worked it out it's 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 actually come astonishingly close and that is that the total cost of ownership of uh for uh, the average owner flown airplane is four times the cost of fuel that you put in it. Huh, interesting. Yeah, that's good. That that would almost work out with us too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you, Mike, for uh, joining us uh, in the virtual hangar this week. Um, you can learn more about Mike and, and his uh, aviation activities at uh, his website, which is the is savvyaviator.com, S-A-V-V-Y aviator.com. Mike, do you have any other web presence you'd like to, to point people to? Uh, that's, the, that's the primary one. That's the primary um, one, Okay. Uh, my 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 legacy is on AvWeb. I, I yeah. write, these, these days, all I do is write a monthly column for AvWeb. I don't run the show there anymore, but uh, 
I have a lot of sweat equity in that one too. There you go. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us. It's been great. We were, it's uh, it's really been uh, a lot of fun, and uh, you fit right in. The guys said you'd fit right in, and they were right. <laughs> Learn more about Dave Higdon and his work at Dave Higdon. Is Dave Higdon.com back online yet, Dave? Oh, Not I keep yet. Forgetting. Not quite yet. All right. But well, then, uh, just Google me. You're gonna have to settle for googling Dave Higdon. I actually googled you. I didn't get any of those uh, those other guys this time. I was almost all the real Dave Higdon uh, when I when I googled your name. So, That's uh, just <laughs> plain spooky. I was gonna say. Your Google must be broken. <laughs> <laughs> and learn more about Jeb at jebburnside.com, also aviationsafetymagazine.com and avweb.com, myself at jackhodgson.com or techpopuli.net. And, of course, visit us all. The forum continues to be a happening place. Jeb even checked in at the forum this past dun, week. Dun, 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 dun. Da, 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 yeah, at uncontrolled airspace. The day the earth stood still. <laughs> uncontrolled <laughs> airspace. They're already giving them a hard time over there. It didn't take long. They're, uh, they're, they're tormenting. Jeb and welcoming him. That's uncontrolledairspace.com. If you want to go to the forums, just add a slash uh, forum onto that. uh, So that's it. Thank you everyone for joining us in the virtual hangar and we'll talk to you all again next time.